Today on Crime on My Mind, we continue our discussion into the brutal murders of Abigail Williams and Liberty German in Delphi, Indiana. We're going to do a deep dive on the information that was released two years later, including a new sketch of the suspect, possible signatures left behind, and a suspicious vehicle parked close to the crime scene. You're listening to Crime on My Mind, and this is the story of the Delphi murders. recording this almost a week after I recorded the first part of this story, mostly because I recorded the first part and then wanted to have it up and published as soon as possible so that people could listen to it. And that proved to be difficult because Apple Podcast was causing me so much distress by taking forever to let me even log on. Uh, But hopefully by the time you're listening to this, that issue has been resolved and you are able to listen to our show on Apple Podcast. Anyways, so back to the case. Last time we went over the timeline of that day, February 13th, 2017, and also what happened right after that in terms of uh, the investigation and the information that was released by law enforcement. So today I want to talk about some of the information that was released much later in this case. But before we dive in, I want to make a point that there has been a new quote-unquote person of interest in this case. Not a suspect, I want to make that clear, but someone who the police have been looking into. And I'm not going to talk about this new person on this show in order to respect Kelsey's wishes. Kelsey, remember, is Libby's sister, and she has asked that all speculation about this new person of interest be kept to a minimum so as to not detract from the true facts of the case, and I think that's totally fair. Lots of people have been saying, oh my gosh, there's an arrest, or there's a new suspect, or they found the guy who did it, and none of that is true. At this point, we have absolutely no evidence that this new person was involved in this case. And until we have more evidence either supporting that or to the contrary, I think it's pointless to discuss him. There has been so much misinformation in this case, so many confusing and contradictory details that have been released, and I think that has been really detrimental to this case. I think that this case would have been solved if there wasn't so much confusing information out there, and I don't want to add to that. So I'm not going to talk about him on today's episode. If in the future any evidence comes out supporting the theory that this guy was involved, then I'll probably do an update, 
But I want to stick to what we know in today's episode. So let me get off my soapbox and let's get started. So in April of 2019, more than two years after the murder of these two girls, Indiana State Police held a press conference updating everyone on this case and releasing a, quote, new direction that the investigation was taking. So let's take a listen to this press conference now. We're seeking the public's help to identify the driver of a vehicle that was parked at the old CPS DCS welfare building in the city of Delphi that was abandoned on the east side of County Road 300 North next to the Hoosier Heartland Highway between the hours of noon to five on February 14th. 2017. If you were parked there or know who was parked there, please contact the officers at the command post at the Delphi City Building. We are releasing additional portions of the audio recording from that day. Please keep in mind the person talking is one person and is the person on the bridge with the girls. This is not two different people speaking. Please listen to it very, very carefully. We are also releasing video recovered from Libby's phone. This video has never before been previously released. The video shows a suspect walking on the bridge. When you see the video, watch the the person's mannerisms as they walk. Watch the mannerisms as he walks. Do you recognize the mannerisms as being someone that you might know? Remember, he is walking on the former railroad bridge. Because of the deteriorated condition of the bridge, the suspect is not walking naturally due to the spacing between the ties. During the course of this investigation, we have concluded the first sketch released will become secondary as of today. The result of the new information and intelligence over time leads us to believe the sketch, which you will see shortly, is the person responsible for the murders of these two little girls. We also believe this person is from Delphi. Currently, or has previously lived here, visits Delphi on a regular basis, or works here. We believe this person is currently between the age range of 18 and 40, but might appear younger than his true age. Directly to the killer who may be in this room. We believe you are hiding in plain sight. For more than two years, you never thought we would shift gears to a different investigative strategy, but we have. We likely have interviewed you or someone close to you. We know that this is about power to you. And you want to know what we know And one day, you will. 
a question to you. What will those closest to you think of when they find out that you brutally murdered two little girls, two children? Only a coward would do such a thing. We are confident that you have told someone what you have done. Or at the very least, they know because of how different you are since the murders. We try so hard to understand how a person could do something like this to two, to two children. I recently watched a movie called The Shack. And there's also a book that talks so well about evil, about death, and about eternity to the murderer. I believe you have just a little bit of a conscience left. And I can assure you that how you left them in that woods is not, it's not what they're experiencing today. So that was Superintendent Doug Carter of the Indiana State Police who was speaking. And this guy, I mean, you can just tell how devoted and dedicated to this case he is and how this case has really shook him up. And no matter what you think about how law enforcement handled this case, and I know there is a lot of criticism out there about that, you can't deny that he cares deeply about these girls and about this case. And I think that's true for most of the law enforcement involved. They care a lot, perhaps so much that it may be to the detriment of the case. So let's talk about this press conference. There was a lot of new information released during this. First, Doug Carter makes a plea to the public for information about a vehicle parked by the old CPS-DCS welfare building next to County Road 300 North and the Hoosier Heartland Highway between the hours of noon to 5 p.m. on February 13th. 2017. I think he originally says February 14th, but that was a mistake that was later corrected to February 13th. Let's talk about this CPS DCS building. I believe this building doesn't exist anymore, uh, so it's a little confusing, but when he says that it's abandoned, he means that the building is abandoned. The car wasn't abandoned there, the building is abandoned. Uh, and when I look at the location of this building on Google Maps or where this building formerly was, it is like right down the road from the Freedom Bridge. So remember, the Freedom Bridge is farther north from the Monin Bridge, and there is an entrance to the Freedom Bridge trails, which is where the 16-year-old witness said that she saw a man who we presume to be Bridge Guy at around 1.30 p.m. that day. So the Freedom Bridge 
runs across the Hoosier Heartland Highway. And the old CPS building is right down the road from that bridge, just off of County Road 300 North. So let's talk about County Road 300 North. There are some really great videos on YouTube that show how quickly you can get to all of the key locations in this case if you just drive a few minutes along 300 North. So the CPS building is just off of this road. And if you keep driving, you will pass the Freedom Bridge. Keep driving a little more, you pass the drop-off location where the girls were dropped off that day. And then keep driving just a little bit more and you get to the Delphi Cemetery. This entire drive, from what I can tell, takes maybe a few minutes at most. It is not far at all, and it's all alongside this one two-lane county road. So you could certainly park at the CPS building and then walk to the Freedom Bridge. So after law enforcement said they were looking into this mysterious vehicle, there has been a lot of speculation online about this. I think the most interesting thing here is that they don't even specify what kind of a vehicle it is that they're looking for. Was it a car, a truck, a van? Was it dark colored, light colored? If we are presuming that this information about this vehicle came from a witness who saw someone parked at the building that day, first of all, wouldn't they have some more general information about what the vehicle looked like? And second of all, why did they wait two years to release this information? Was this information that they just got from a witness who came forward? In which case, two years is a long time to wait to come forward with information like that. Was this information that they had all along, but they didn't think it was relevant until now? I just can't imagine why they would hold this information back. And also why, if this indeed did come from someone seeing a car there and not just speculation that there might have been a car there, why wouldn't they release any other information about this vehicle? Now, is it possible that Bridge Guy did in fact park at the CPS building? Yes, I think it is. I think it is possible that he parked there and walked to the Freedom Bridge which is why that 16-year-old witness saw him there at 1.30 p.m. Then he could have walked down towards the Monin Bridge, saw the girls either getting dropped off or already on the trails, and then cornered them when they were on the other side of the bridge. The part of this theory that I have doubts about is how he got back to his vehicle after the crimes were committed. I know we talked about in the last episode the second witness who was with his girlfriend and saw someone who resembled Bridge Guy walking back towards the Freedom Bridge um, sometime after 3 p.m. To be perfectly honest, I have my doubts about this. To think that Bridge Guy would be so careless to go back on those trails where there were a good amount of people who would see him and he had to have known that someone would come looking for these girls eventually. And I still think that he had to have been covered by blood. If we are to believe that this crime was as heinous and as gruesome as people say it was, how could he have not been covered by blood? 
I just think it would have been incredibly risky for him to have walked back through those trails after committing this crime. So that leaves us with a few other options. If he did, in fact, park his vehicle at the CPS building, it is possible that he killed the girls and then started walking in the opposite direction. So not back towards the Monin Bridge, but instead further through the wilderness towards the direction of the Delphi Cemetery. And this is where I encourage you all to go online to our website and look at the map that is from the Actus Reis Delphi timeline, because otherwise this would be pretty hard to visualize. But I think he could have walked up from the creek towards the cemetery, which, by the way, is not an easy walk. You have to walk quite a ways to get from the creek to the cemetery, and it's quite rough terrain, so he would have had to be in pretty good shape. I think he could have walked back up to the cemetery and possibly walked along County Road 300 North to get back to the CPS building and to his vehicle. It would have probably been a pretty long walk. I think it's about a mile from the cemetery to the building, but it's definitely possible. My only issue with that is kind of the same thing with the trails. Wouldn't people driving on 300 North have seen him walking alongside the road? I don't know how busy this road is or how many people travel on this road. It didn't look like a major highway or anything like that to me. It's kind of just a normal two-lane road. So maybe there aren't a lot of cars that drive along there. So there could have been a low likelihood that people would see him. From the videos I saw online, it also seems like the road is surrounded on both sides by trees and greenery and woods, so it is possible that he was walking through the roads on either side of the road, and so that's why people didn't see him. I still think it's incredibly risky, but I mean, so is everything about this case, so it could have happened for all we know. The other option, and this is kind of two options built into one, is that he either parked at the Delphi Cemetery and not at the CPS building, or he either parked or was dropped off by someone at the CPS building, and then after the crime was picked up by someone at the cemetery. This is kind of a controversial theory, the idea that there were two people involved or at least someone who dropped him off or picked him up that day. If the first option is true, if he did in fact park at the cemetery and not at the CPS building, I think that means that he really thought this through. Like, he knew if he was successful in committing this crime that day, that he wouldn't be able to walk back through the trails and that he would instead have to take a route through the woods that would be much less noticeable. So I think that indicates a little bit more foresight and planning. Now, the other option is that he had help. Maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but I do think it's possible and honestly, even likely that he had help that day. If we are to think that he was in fact covered in blood or at the very least wet following this crime, 
he had to get out of there unnoticed. So I think it's possible that someone dropped him off at the trails that day and then picked him up at the cemetery. And if that is the case, I think that also means that he had to really plan this out because assuming that he didn't bring his phone with him that day, which is another thing that we will talk about later on, that means that he couldn't have like just called someone and been like, hey, pick me up at the cemetery in 10 minutes. He would have had to plan this beforehand and he would have had to have the help of someone who either knowingly or unknowingly abetted him in this crime. It's also possible, and honestly, I think this theory carries more weight than people think. I think that this might have been an attempted abduction gone wrong. I think it's totally possible that Bridge Guy intended to have the girls walk back up to wherever he had parked his car, whether it was farther along that private driveway or up at Delphi Cemetery, and kidnap them. Maybe he had a second person waiting in the car, maybe he didn't. But I think that is a total possibility. And that means that something went wrong. The girls either tried to fight him or tried to run or both. And that's why he had to kill them right then and there. And honestly, I think this is what may have happened because if you think about how quickly this crime was committed, so we know that bridge guy was up on that bridge telling the girls to go down the hill somewhere around 2.15 to 2.30. We also know that a witness was up on the dead end side of the bridge and took a photo at around 3 p.m. and she didn't hear or see anything. So assuming that the crime was done by around 3 p.m., that's just 30 minutes, 45 minutes at the most, to control and murder these girls and do whatever else it was that he did to them. That is not long at all, especially if you think about how long this guy probably planned this moment and fantasized about this moment. I mean, I think he wanted more time with them, whether that was right there in the woods or at a secondary location. But for whatever reason, he wasn't successful in that. Okay, so that was a long tangent, but I'd love to hear what you guys think about this vehicle at the CPS building because I honestly don't know what to make of it. But back to the press conference. Law enforcement also releases the infamous second sketch in this case, and they say that the first sketch, which had been the only sketch in this case for two years, was now secondary and that this new sketch is the person who is responsible for this crime. Guys, this whole sketch debacle frustrates me so much. I mean, first of all, can you imagine being the family in this situation and having spent two years circulating that first sketch, only to find out that this new sketch looks nothing like that first one? I mean, I can't even imagine. I think Kelsey herself even commented on how gut-wrenching that moment was because she knew that all of her hard work the past two years in getting that first sketch out there had essentially been a waste. Apparently, we are not supposed to disregard the first sketch completely, but instead we are supposed to consider it to be secondary. 
Honestly, I have no idea what that means. I think it means that these sketches are of the same person, which I have so much trouble believing that. I mean, everything about these sketches are different to me. The first sketch looks so much older to me. I mean, the guy in the first sketch, I think, is probably around like 40, maybe 35 at the youngest. He's wearing a hat, kind of like a newsboy hat. He has facial hair. He has what looks to be pretty straight hair, although you can't really tell because of the hat. The guy in the second sketch, on the other hand, looks maybe 25, 30 at the most. He's clean-shaven, no facial hair, no hat, and his hair looks kind of curly to me. It looks like curly, wavy-ish. And I just cannot believe that these two sketches are of the same person, but apparently they are. Law enforcement, I believe, has said that these are the same person, but from the perspective of different witnesses. I've heard some people speculate that maybe the first sketch is from the perspective of younger witnesses, which is why he looks so much older than the second sketch, which might have been from the perspective of an older witness. I don't know about this. I mean, if there was a, like, slight difference in the sketches, then I might believe that, but these are so different from each other that I have a lot of trouble believing that this is just a matter of a 16-year-old compiling one sketch and a 50-year-old compiling another sketch. I remember being 16, and while I probably didn't have a good grasp of what a 20-year-old versus a 30-year-old looked like, I think I had a good grasp of what a 20-year-old versus a 40-year-old looked like. And these two sketches to me, like, the age difference between them looks to be at least 20 years. Now, Doug Carter did say in that press conference that the killer is between the ages of 18 to 40, and that he might appear younger than his true age. I think that's so interesting because I can see that with the second sketch. Like, I can see this being a 35-year-old who just looks like they're 25, you know? I've also heard people say that the first sketch, so the older looking guy, was compiled partially based on the grainy video that Libby took. And I think that might be accurate because the first guy looks a lot like the guy in the video. I mean, down to the hat. Like, I could totally believe that the guy in the first sketch is the guy in the video. The second sketch, I have a lot more trouble seeing how that guy could be the same guy in the video because when I look at the video, it looks like someone who is at least 40 years old. I mean, just the way he's dressed. And I do remember hearing about this in some podcast. I think it might have been The Prosecutors or True Crime Garage. One of them had mentioned that they had asked Kelsey, is this how younger people in Delphi dress? And she had said yes. She went to school with teenagers and college students who dressed like this, which I was so surprised by because if you showed me that picture of Bridge Guy, I would think that no one under the age of 40 would dress like that. But I'm also not from the Midwest. I'm not from Delphi, so I might be basing that off of what I see where I live. 
So if you take that into consideration, then maybe you can see how the guy in the video is younger and more around the age of the second sketch. You also have to consider maybe he's wearing a disguise. Maybe he's wearing clothes he wouldn't normally wear because he doesn't want to be identified or he wants to look older than he is. Maybe he's wearing those clothes that are super baggy to hide the weapons he has underneath them. So just because he's dressed like this on this video doesn't mean he wears these kinds of clothes on a regular basis. Doug Carter also says that they believe the killer is from Delphi, either currently or previously lives there, visits regularly, or works there. That was the conclusion I had drawn at the end of the last episode. I think I said that I didn't necessarily think he lived there at the time, but I do think he maybe grew up there or was from one of the surrounding towns or just happened to visit regularly, whether for work or to see family there or something like that. Okay, then there is the part that no matter how many times I listen to this, it always sends shivers down my spine. Doug Carter speaks directly to the killer and says that he might even be in the room that day. I think a lot of people assumed at the time that this line meant that he knows who the killer is and he knew that the killer would be at that press conference that day. I think some of the people who were there that day even said that they expected him to go up and arrest someone after the press conference like they would in Law and Order or something. He also goes on to say, we have likely interviewed you or someone close to you. I think that's probably true. When you think about just how many people they had interviewed by this time and how small of a town this is, I think it's absolutely likely that they have interviewed either the killer or someone close to the killer and they just don't even know it. And then he says something super interesting. He says, how you left them in those woods is not what they're experiencing today. Wow, that is powerful. That is the closest we've gotten to hearing about the state that the girls were in when they were found. And there are so many rumors about this. I mean, I've heard every rumor in the book about how the girls were found, and we'll talk more about potential signatures in this case later. But I think that is just so fascinating that he says that, because I can imagine that saying that would really piss the killer off. If he has this fantasy of how he left the girls, and if he relives that fantasy daily, to then be told that's not how they are now, I think that would make him really angry, and I think that was exactly the point of saying that. They also released more audio at this press conference. I don't know why they held this back for so long. It's literally just one more word, guys, and Doug Carter specifies very clearly that there is just one person saying guys and down the hill. And I think that may have been why they held that back for so long, because they were worried that people might speculate, that it's two different people saying this. And we dissected the audio in detail in the last episode, and we talked about how 
there is a significant change in tone of this guy's voice from guys to down the hill. So much so that I can see why people might think that they're two different people. So maybe that's why they held it back for so long. Uh, That might also be why they held back the actual video of Bridge Guy walking for so long. Because remember, they had initially just released a still image of the video that Libby had taken, but at this press conference, they released the actual video, or at least part of it. And Doug Carter specifies that how this guy is walking is probably not how he normally walks because he's walking on this bridge, and I would agree with that. I have seen people on the internet speculate that this guy's walking means that he has an injury or something. I don't think that's true. I mean, if he had an injury, I don't see how he could have traversed this terrain and controlled two young girls. I think he had to be in pretty good shape for that. So I don't think that we should pay too much attention to the gait. I think mannerisms definitely can be very distinct to certain people. So releasing the video earlier might have helped in that regard because two years later, I mean, people's memories fade so quickly. I just don't know why they waited so long to release the video, but maybe they had their reasons and we just don't know. Now, let's talk about some of the things that Robert Ives, who was the chief prosecutor at that time, has said. He has probably been the investigator involved with this case who has been the most loose-lipped. First of all, he says that he and everyone else involved had initially thought that the crime would be solved within a few days due to the evidence that was present, both physical evidence and the video evidence. He says that he still believes that the crime will be solved, but he thinks that it might take someone being arrested for a different crime and then confessing to this crime for that to happen. He also says there is a lot more physical evidence at the crime scene and it's probably not what you imagine or what people think. He says the crime scene was very unusual and strange and that there were three or more physical aspects of the crime scene that you would want to take pictures of. In the early days, law enforcement was looking for crimes in other locations that might have similar characteristics to this. He also thinks that these physical aspects of the crime scene should be released to the public because at the time, the public was looking for more general things than the items that he was looking for. So he thinks that if it was released to the public, then someone might be able to make an association from that. Okay, a lot to unpack here. First of all, he says that police had thought this would be solved rather quickly. I think everyone thought that at the beginning. I don't think anyone thought it would take more than four years to solve this case. Just on the fact that there is video of the person who committed this crime. But this is interesting. He says that he now believes that it would take someone confessing to the crime after being caught for another crime to solve this case. That, to me, tells me that they don't have the DNA of the person who did this. The reason being that if they had the DNA and the person responsible was arrested for another crime, they wouldn't need a confession 
to know that this was their guy for Delphi also, because they would already have his DNA. So the fact that he says that this case would be solved only with a confession tells me that they don't have the DNA of the perpetrator. I might be wrong, he might have just said that without thinking about it, but that was my thought when I heard that. He does, however, say that there is a lot of physical evidence, but it's not what people might think. That also, to me, says that they don't have DNA, because when I think of physical evidence, I think of blood, fingerprints, saliva, some sort of DNA that is specific to one person. So the fact that he says it isn't what you would think leads me to believe that this evidence has something to do with the signatures in this case. He also says that there were three or more physical aspects of the crime scene that were very strange and that you would want to take pictures of. He says that these aspects are not the general types that we might be thinking of. So that leads me to believe that the signatures in this case, the physical aspects that were unusual, have to be something that if you saw it, you would know that it was specific to one person. For example, one of the big rumors about the possible signatures in this case is that the killer left behind dolls. First of all, that is super creepy and I don't even want to like picture that because I'll have nightmares. But I'm guessing if that were the case, then it would be something where if you knew Mr. So-and-so likes to collect these specific dolls and then if you saw pictures of the dolls left there, you would immediately be able to link them to Mr. So-and-so. Not saying that there were dolls left at the crime scene, I'm just using that as an example. So I think that the signatures in this case are so unusual that if you knew the person who committed this, you would be able to immediately link the crime scene to that person. And that is why a lot of people are so frustrated that more information about the crime scene hasn't been released. And I'm not trying to blame law enforcement here. I think that they have an incredibly difficult job and that they care so much about these girls and about their families that they probably are making many of their decisions based on their desire and their need to protect the girls and their families. And that's probably why they haven't released the entire video, why they haven't released the cause of death, and why they haven't said anything about these supposed signatures. I don't think it's anything malicious. I don't think they're holding back evidence with any malicious intent. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. It probably is true that the rest of the video doesn't reveal anything more than what we already have. I'm guessing that the image that we have is the best image of Bridge Guy we're gonna get. And same with the audio. There might be something on that video that you wouldn't want the family to see or the public to see because of how it depicts the girls. And I don't mean that there's something on there that makes the girls look bad. I mean there's something on there that is probably so horrific that you wouldn't want everyone to see it. You wouldn't want the girls to be remembered by those last moments. So I understand that need to protect Abby and Libby because they were so violated in their death and someone needs to protect them now. I understand that completely. At the same time, I wonder what evidence they are holding back that could potentially leave to someone having that last missing piece of the puzzle piece that makes them 
turn in that tip that leads to the guy who did it. And if Robert Ives is correct in that the physical aspects of this crime scene are so unique and so strange that someone would be able to identify the killer from them, then I think that needs to be released. You can do it in a way that is respectful to the girls and to their families and that preserves their dignity after death. But if there is anything of value, even of the most seemingly insignificant value, I do think it should be released. Another thing I thought was interesting is that Robert Ives seems to kind of suggest that this guy might be a repeat offender or even a serial killer. I think that's interesting because personally, I don't think that this was the first crime this person had ever committed or even the first murder. We've talked about this a lot. This was a risky, risky crime. Robert Ives even said that you can look down from one of the houses in the area and see the crime scene. That is incredibly risky. Also, to take on two girls is really hard. I mean, there is a good chance that at least one of them could have gotten away. So that just leads me to believe that this guy had committed a crime before, probably even killed someone before. And maybe he got away with that, maybe he didn't. Okay, let's talk about cell phones. According to the prosecutor's podcast, the police were able to get information about every cell phone that pinged the towers within, I believe, a five-mile radius of the crime scene. And they contacted every single person whose cell phone pinged within that radius. Apparently, there were also only two cell phone towers in Delphi at the time, and you could be in one location but ping both towers without even moving. Apparently, this is what happened with Libby's phone, which led some people to believe that she had been moving around that day when in fact she hadn't. I will be honest, I don't really know how cell phone towers and pings work, I listened to the entirety of Serial and still don't understand how all of that works, but I can imagine that they had to talk to a whole bunch of people if they did in fact talk to everyone whose cell phone pinged around there, which is part of the reason why I do think that they have probably already talked to the killer. The only other option is that this guy didn't bring a phone with him that day, which means Either one, he doesn't have a phone, which I think the majority of people these days have some sort of phone, so that is probably less likely. Or two, he had the foresight to plan ahead and leave his phone home that day. I mean, nowadays, everyone has watched enough CSI and Law & Order to know that bringing your cell phone with you can be a way to get caught committing a crime. So I don't think it means that he is so sophisticated that he knew to leave his cell phone behind. Um, It probably just means that he went there that day knowing he might commit a crime, which we kind of already know that he did just because he did bring weapons and who knows what else with him. If he did in fact leave his cell phone at home or wherever, I also think that probably means he has a pretty good understanding of the geography of 
this location and of these trails because he didn't need the help of Google Maps or whatever to guide him through this terrain and uh, to get to the bridge and then get back to his car or, or wherever he was going. So I also think that's something interesting to keep in mind. But it could be that he brought his phone and he was questioned by police um, and, and he's been ruled out. So I think that's also a possibility. The final thing I wanted to talk about is the crossing of the creek. Why were the girls found on the other side of the creek? Did they cross the creek because Bridge Guy ordered them to, or did they make a run for it? I think, honestly, it might be a combination of the two. It's possible that the Bridge Guy wanted them to cross the creek because he wanted to direct the girls to a specific location, whether that was a more secluded part of the woods or to a vehicle that was parked farther away. I think that makes sense that he wouldn't have wanted to keep the girls super close to the Monin Bridge where it was possible that someone could see them or hear them. I also think it's possible that he directed them across the creek and that the girls took this as an opportunity to run. And the fact that Libby's shoe was found on the bridge side of the creek while her body was found on the other side makes me believe that they did in fact run. And I think they also fought. I think they fought like hell. There have been rumors that there was overkill in this case to at least one of the girls. And some people take that to mean that this was a personal crime, that the killer knew the girls. And in the prosecutor's podcast, they make a really good point that sometimes we make assumptions that overkill means this was personal. But personal doesn't necessarily mean that the killer knew the victims. It could just mean that they really made him mad for whatever reason. Maybe they fought and ruined this fantasy that he had, and so he got really angry and did whatever he did to them. It could mean that, like many, many killers, this guy had a hatred of women or a hatred of young girls, and that hatred for him was personal and he took that out on these two innocent young children so if we are to assume that there was overkill to either one or both of the girls then i think that further points to the fact that these girls did something to really make this guy mad i think they fought like hell this guy probably thought that they would be so scared that they would just go along with whatever it was he was directing them to do but they didn't they were brave enough to take their chance and try to run away. If he did in fact act alone, it's really hard to control two people at the same time. So I think we can believe that one of the girls had the chance to get away, but didn't. They stuck with their friend. And I think that says so much about the courage and the bravery that these girls had, and also the cowardice that this perpetrator had. The police have repeatedly said that they are one piece away from solving this case. There is someone out there who knows something, and maybe they don't even realize it. Someone out there is the one missing puzzle piece that we need to solve this case and get justice for Abby and Libby. And that is why we need to keep spreading awareness about this case, and also making sure that we spread the correct information. I think I'm going to stop here. 
This case has stayed with me since I first heard about it, and I know it'll stay with me until the day we catch the guy who did this. I hope that one day I can do an update to this case and say that we have found justice for Abby and Libby. If you have any information regarding this case, please contact the tip line at 844-459-5786. You can remain anonymous if you'd like. You can also email tips to abbyandlibbytip at caco.shrf.com. All of this information will be in the description for this episode. Until next time, you're listening to Crime on My Mind. Sources for this episode include True Crime Garage Podcast, The Prosecutor's Podcast, Julie Melvin on YouTube, Hoosier Cold Cases on YouTube, The Mind Shock Podcast, Fox 59 News, ABC 7 Chicago, The Dr. Oz Show, and the Actus Rias Blog's Delphi Timeline. And he says that these aspects are not the general types that we...